Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, everybody. It's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippy Show. This week, we welcome Jonathan Haidt, author, professor of social psychology at NYU Stern, Jonathan also has been writing for The Atlantic on the effects of social media and the internet on everything from teenagers to our democracy. His recent piece, Why the Last 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, caught a lot of attention, including mine. And I knew we had to discuss it. It really sums up a lot of his work since an incredible book that I highly recommend people read today because of uh, uh, what it lays out, The Coddling of the American uh, Mind. Uh, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Alex, for having me on. You know, along with recommending people uh, read The Coddling of the American Mind, it, it seems so very relevant today. But but you center it around the, the three great untruths that are hurting our development and track the rise of illiberalism on college campuses. Um, but it's it's impacting far more than that. I just wanted to, to start there and, and give people a foundation for uh, how you think about this. Sure. Actually, it's, you know, it's funny. Most of my conversations these days, people focus on my second book, which is The Righteous Mind, uh, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, which is about my basic research in moral and political psychology. Uh, but my last book was, as you said, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And that actually is maybe a better place to start this story today. Um, because you know, what happened to me is that I, I'm a college professor. i, I spent most of my career at the University of Virginia, and then I moved to NYU uh, Stern in, in 2011. And I, I love being a professor. It's great fun to be a professor. You know, you, you, you're always talking with smart people and interested students, and, and there's humor, and there's ideas and interest. And then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, things change in 2014. And I've been struggling ever since then to figure out what the hell happened. Because all of a sudden, in, in the spring of 2014, we started hearing all kinds of stories about students demanding trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, uh, cultural appropriation. There was a really combative fragility. There was a, a kind of a uh, students, and again, not most of them, but this is not a story about most students. This is a story about a new social dynamic that came in driven by a few students and a new technology. Um, and so, you know, weird stuff started happening on college campuses. My friend, Greg Lukianoff was, I think the first to really diagnose it. Um, he's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And he learned how to do cognitive behavioral therapy when he was treated for depression, for suicidal depression in 2007. And then suddenly in 2013, 2014, he starts hearing students saying basically the exact cognitive distortions he had learned not to do. And so we talked about this and we figured, wow, this is this, somehow this is happening to, to young people today in 2014, 2015. So the three really terrible ideas that we saw young people embracing were um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, therefore avoid anything unpleasant or threatening or um, 
Uh, avoid speakers that might say things that you find offensive that will somehow damage you, it won't make you stronger. So that's the first great untruth. The second great untruth is always trust your feelings. If you feel that something's wrong, it must be wrong. Um, don't question it. Don't investigate it. You know, go go against the advice of of Buddha and and Marcus Aurelius and almost all wise people from all eras who say, no, wait a second. Sometimes your emotions lead you astray. And then the third untruth, the most damaging of them all, is the eternal uh, untruth: the idea that um, life is a battle between good people and evil people. We fall into that effortlessly, easily. Uh, and the sages, East and West, for thousands of years have been telling us, don't do that. Don't think that way. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn has a wonderful line. The line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. So anyway, those are the three terrible ideas where it, if a young person embraces them, I can almost guarantee that they will not be successful in life. Uh, so that's what that book was about. The reason I think Joe and I were thinking of starting there was because it really does track with the rise of, of what I think you've called illiberalism on, on campuses, but that has a ton of parallels with the rise of illiberalism, both in, in America and yes. Joe can get into some of the work you've been doing with the Lincoln Project on that, on fighting that front. But how, how do you see that tracking? Is it kind of parallel? Was it this was kind of a, a laboratory for it, and then these ideas were jumping to the mainstream, or was it all happening too fast? So the, the key, I believe, to understanding what happened around 2014 and for the rest of the 2010s um, is it, it's not that people changed. It's that the dynamics between people changed. Social media linked people in a certain way that made it very easy to intimidate others and harass them and threaten them into silence. Uh, and this was always done in the name of morality, people doing this, you know, as with violence, most political violence is committed by people who think that they're doing God's work or they're doing something good. Um, and so, you know, always, there's always been an illiberal left that is not liberal, and there's always been an illiberal right that is not liberal and not conservative, that is radical. And on both ends, you know, what you, what you see is you see people want to tear everything down. Um, and that is so contrary to the conservative spirit on the right. Um, it is something that has been long with us on the left, certainly since the French Revolution, that revolutionary spirit. Uh, but I think, you know, my, my position, and I think most of the Democratic leaders has always been liberals. Like, we believe in institutions, we believe in process, free speech, due process, individual rights. And so it was very disconcerting to see, you know, there's always been an illiberal left, but suddenly they were super empowered. Uh, and that's basically what my Atlantic article was about. How did, how did the far right, the far left trolls and Russian agents, how did they get super empowered um, around 2014? You had said that the like buttons and the, the retweet button with Facebook and, and, and Twitter back in, you know, before this, 2007, 2008, um, as they were coming on 2009. And, uh, you know, remember reading that you said that, uh, had we had we not had those changes in social media, just those two, um, that you know maybe the whole country would have lost its mind and yep. by Obama's second term. So how how do we get from it, it you know that to it taking what now 14, 2014, another five years? Yeah, for you to see the sea change that you're seeing on college campuses. So let's walk through it. So um, you know communication is a good thing, and and historically. You know, when you create the postal service and people can send each other letters, well, that's a good thing. When you bring in the telegraph and the telephone, that, that's a good thing. Uh, 
Um, when radio and TV come in, now there, there are growing pains and they can be misused and fascists and dictators use them. So, so communication technologies often are disruptive and they sometimes cause conflicts and problems. But in general, we think connecting people and making it easy to share information is a good thing. Uh, and so, you know, Joe, you and I are certainly old enough to remember when email came in, it was like, you mean I don't have to get a postage stamp? I don't have to pay long distance? Yep. Like it's free? I can send documents and photographs? This is incredible. And then, the, and then, you know, you discover web browsers. And that's, that was like, that was like the invention of electricity. It was like, you know, you can just go anywhere in the world. I mean, so to go back to the 90s and the joy and the discovery and the sense of possibility that we all had about this new technology that was going to connect us. And so this is what I call uh, the age of techno-democratic optimism. You know, the Berlin Wall yeah. had just fallen. The Soviet Empire was gone. Yeah, I was a big, a big believer in that. I, uh, you know, my book, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, was all about this uh, incredible technology that would bring us all together. And uh, yeah, that's right. We, we have to read the subtitle here. It, it, your subtitle is Democracy, the Internet and the Overthrow of Everything. So I think it was especially progressives were cheered by this because they've long had more egalitarian dreams of empowering everybody, giving everyone voice. And the Internet was clearly destined to do that. So it was a very exciting time. And the pinnacle of that, I think, was the Arab Spring, you know, that right. year, 2011. The Arab Spring kicks it off in February, you know, with um, in, you know, Tunisia and Egypt. Um, and we think, wow, the Internet's going to take down dictators. And, you know, there's no way that uh, China or anyone else can keep it out. Good luck trying. Um, and that year ends with Occupy Wall Street, which goes global. So 2011 was this peak year of techno-democratic optimism. So your question is, where did it all go wrong? Yes. And so the story, the story that I tell, and, this, and, and here I'm not an expert on the technology, so I teamed up with Tobias Rose Stockwell, um, who's a technology writer and who's worked at various tech companies. Um, and, and working with him, we, we wrote an Atlantic article in uh, November of 2019 that traced out the changes in technology. And the key is in 2009, um, Facebook adds the like button and Twitter copies it, and Twitter adds the retweet button and Facebook copies it or it's it had the share function is rolled out variously but it's by 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 2012 every place all these other platforms now have like and share buttons and what that means it seems like it's giving people what they want but what it means is that the platforms have huge amounts of data on engagement and now facebook in particular begins to use algorithms to maximize the likelihood that you're going to click like or share and it turns out that means maximizing for emotion, which turns out means maximizing for anger. And the retweet button in particular is so much more powerful than the like. A like is just saying, I like this. But a retweet is not only do I like it, but I'm going to share it with you know, all of my 7,000 followers. And if they, on average, have 7,000 followers, well, you know, in a few clicks, it can go out to millions if it's, if it's sufficiently viral or anger-inducing. And so that's when things really begin to change. Mm -hmm. We get this hyper-viralized social media. Now, people have always been posting horrible, nasty stuff. And today, everyone's arguing over content moderation. Oh, my God, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. There'll be less content moderation. But we, you know, we want a little more. Um, and my, I, what I keep trying to say is, please stop talking about content moderation. It, you know, it, it's important, but, um, but it's not that important. It's really all about the changes in dynamics. That what, that's what got us into this. And if Musk were to uh, do less content moderation, but make things less viral and do user authentication, it could actually get better. So, so just to finish up on your question, 2009, 
I get this hyper-viralized social media, but it takes a little while for, for the norms to change. And the engineer, one of the engineers at Twitter who worked on the retweet button, he said later when interviewed, he said, when we saw those first Twitter mobs forming a few years later, um, he said, we thought, wow, we've just handed a loaded gun to a four-year-old. Um, so, so the viral dynamics, it takes a little while to play out. There's also, I just learned just since writing the article, um, threaded contents, uh, threaded comments. That only comes in in 2013. And threaded comments are, you know, somebody, you know, Barack Obama posts something. And it used to be most of the people responding to it were positive and some were negative, but that was it. You say something positive, you say something negative, done. But threaded comments are a nobody with seven followers can say some horrible, nasty thing in response to a positive comment, let's say. And then other people chime in. And before you know it, everyone's fighting with everybody on this thread where millions of people can see it. So th there's a constant effort. And, and we know this about Facebook. They literally paid their engineers or they, paid, they gave people bonuses based on how much they could increase engagement. And by 2014, everything gets so engaging, so viral that it becomes just constant fighting. The reason I really wanted to talk to you about this is part of this is you talk about sort of the, the, the polarization spiral that we're all in now, where this is all that constant fighting and the constant back and forth is actually driving us deeper into the polarized, you, you know, the polarization in that fight. Mm -hmm. um, and as a Democrat, uh, and also more as a uh, somebody who I, I think is very concerned about uh, the threat to our democracy right now. Um, how I wanted to sort of get into any thoughts about, I, I know you've, you've had ideas about how to fix it or, or what, but also as it, it you know, as, as, as Democrats, what, or, 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 like I said, the pro-democracy side of things, I even hate to call it the side of things, but how, mm -hmm. how do we stop, get out of that spiral, out of that yeah. polarization spiral? It's like, mm -hmm. it, you can, one side actually uh, you know, it's actually one on one case where it's almost mutually assured destruction if we keep do, all doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, the other side of it is, uh, you know, speaking in, in sort of political and military terms, is you know, it's unilaterally withdrawing from mm -hmm. it is not a yeah. solution either, I don't think. So, uh, anyway, I, I'll get your thoughts. So, uh, you know, we to understand anything complicated, we need a metaphor. And uh, actually here, I think your listeners will be very familiar with George Lakoff and his famous book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Yeah. He also has an amazing book, Moral Politics, which really influenced me when I was, uh, well, when I was uh, doing my research, my early research on moral psychology. And so Lakoff, and, and then actually, my God, Lakoff and Johnson, this incredible book, uh, Metaphors We Live By, that influenced a lot of graduate students and uh, people in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, so he says, you know, we think of argument as war, uh, and that is good. It, it's helpful in some ways, but it, it backfires in others. So, in a war, in a war, if you apply overwhelming force, you can actually kill your adversaries or deprive them of food or escape, and then you can win. So that happens in a war, but that doesn't happen in an argument, and that doesn't happen in a culture war. In a culture war, there is no way to so overwhelm the other side that they will give up and you will win. The harder you hit them, the stronger they get. Because the more passionate your side is, the more stupid things someone will say. And the right is armed with an infinite supply of individual people on the left saying incredibly stupid, nasty, racist things. Um, and, or you know, going crazy or crying and screaming. In fact, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos specialized 
in provoking uh, provoking college students on the left so that there would be videos of right. them doing things that were horribly embarrassing. And he even said this. He said, here's how you beat me. Here's my strategy, but you're not going to do it because you're not even going to read this, he said. Um, anyway, so in a culture war, especially one that is carried on Twitter with little video clips, um, the harder you hit the other side, the stronger they get. So you can't win by uh, doubling down. On the other hand, you can't win by unilaterally withdrawing. As you say, that's not going to win either. Um, so how can you win? Well, if you're stuck in a horrible, unwinnable game, maybe what you should do is try to team up with some of the more reasonable people on the other side and say, you know what? This game sucks. This is terrible. Like the ship is sinking and we're just fighting each other on the deck. Let's stop doing this. Let's change the rules. And so uh, some of the rules would be things like, um, you can't, you know, look, banks have know your customer laws. You can't just bring a bag of cash to Wells Fargo and say, open an account in the name of, you know, John Smith. Um, they have to actually know who you are to do business with you. And I think the same, now that we see that these platforms are, are literally driving our democracy to ruin, I, I think that um, it's hard, of course, it's hard to predict the future, but if, if we continue this increase in fighting, decrease in trust, complete loss of a sense of, of, of reality or truth. Um, I think the technologies are making democracies weaker and they're making authoritarian countries stronger. So we're gonna lose, the ship is sinking. Um, so, but uh, authenticating users, it's not that hard. Uh, everybody freaks out and says, oh, you, but, but you have to have anonymity. You have to post on, you know, why, you can't make people post under their, under their real name. Fine, don't use your real name. You can use uh, you can use whatever name you want, but to open the account, like it's just insane that we let right. anyone, any Russian agent, can walk up and say, "Please open ninety-seven accounts in these names," you know, and then they can just <laughs> use them however they want and make death threats, yeah. and they can. So that's insane. That has to stop. So that right there, like that would be an example of how do we change the game? Yeah, Elon Musk is talking about doing that. I think as part of what what he wants to try to do. That's right. Now, there's a couple of different layers of authentication. So I think he might be talking about the minimum kind. Right. The minimum kind is just prove that you're a human. I don't care who you are or how old you are. Just prove you're a human, not a bot. Okay, so that would be a big step in the right direction. What I'm arguing for is two more steps. So one is you should have to also prove that you're in a particular country um, and you're old enough to use the platform. I'm extremely concerned about what social media is doing to teenagers. So I think we have to begin doing age gating. And the industry has come up with all kinds of ways to do age gating. There are multiple methods, you know, physiological face structure, showing documents. There are multiple different ways to do it. Uh, but I think we, if we had more than just, are you a human, but are you a human who's older than 18? And I think I would actually prefer um, that you actually have to authenticate in some way that corresponds to your identity. It could be with some sort of crypto token. So Facebook doesn't have to know your name. Um, but you have to do something through a third party or through some, you know, some uh, uh, blockchain-based uh, system that establishes that you are you are somebody. Um, and at that point, then it kicks back to Facebook, and they say to say, "Yep, okay, he's authenticated as a person. Uh, now he can open an account and can post." That that's the way I think it should work. You know, in 2022, obviously November, you know, uh, literally less than 180 days from now, I think there's an election. It's going to be taking place with all the, you know, and, and none of this is going to change between the now and then. I mean, the authentication, those kinds of things. Right. Again, sort of right. how, how, what do you think the Democratic Party should be doing right now? Or is that something you don't, you don't think about because 
Oh gosh, yeah. No, I've been thinking about this since. Uh, so I first, so I used to study how morality varies across cultures: India, Brazil, uh, U.S., and also social class. And in the early two thousands, after George W. Bush won twice, when I thought he was a bad candidate, and the Democrats should have won, um, I started switching my research over to offer advice to Democrats on how they could talk about morality in a way that would resonate. Because, you know, Al Gore and John Kerry, they would say things that just, you know, they might have sounded okay in democratic circles, but they were just really alienating to most Americans. They didn't understand American morality, I thought. So I wrote an article in, in, in here, I, mean, I just haven't looked at this in years, uh, called What Makes People Vote Republican? And I was trying to explain, this was published on edge.org, and I was trying to explain that there's all these different foundations of morality. It's not all just about harm and fairness. There's also issues of loyalty and honor and authority and stability and purity and sanctity. Um, so I was trying to explain that the moral domain is actually really broad and the Democrats need to understand that if they're going to start winning elections. Uh, and of course, nobody, you know, nobody read my memos. Nobody, re- I don't think right. anybody ever yeah. listened to me. Yeah, join the crowd. Yeah, I'm there too. That's right. But so that's how I started. And now, uh, now what advice should the Democrats have? I, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a political strategist. I was just a moral psychologist offering advice, but it turns out, I think there's a lot of center left um, political analysts who've been saying this for a long time. And I, and I recently came across this, uh, call, I think Roy Teixeira is really, really smart. And he has a, his substack is uh, the liberal patriot, and uh, last December, he had a, a, a column. It was the five deadly sins of the left. Um, and I think every Democrat running for office and every Democrat period should read this short essay. Um, it's things that the Democrats do that are just so alienating to most voters. So the sin of identity politics, the sin of retro socialism, the sin of catastrophism, the sin of growth phobia, and the sin of techno-pessimism. Okay, maybe I'm guilty of that one. But anyway, um, you know, I mean, the polling is very clear. Almost everybody dislikes political correctness and wokeness. The majorities of white people, black people, Hispanics, Asians, old, young, almost everybody, well, the majorities dislike wokeness and political correctness. And what we're seeing on the left, and this is what I argued in my, in my essay, is that the, the Republican Party has become structurally stupid. Um, a core idea of the essay is structural stupidity. When you shoot your dissidents, when you, when you uh, shame or harass or expel anyone who challenges your sacred notions, then your group becomes structurally stupid. You lose the benefit of, of argument and dissent. So the Republican Party has become structurally stupid. The Democratic Party has not because moderates and, and the, the far left you know, do argue it out. There are moderates in the Democratic Party, plenty of them. So it's not the party that's so crazy. Um, it's that the left controls the high points of our culture. The left controls all of our knowledge-based and cultural institutions. So certainly universities, K-12 education, education schools, the arts, um, uh, media, Hollywood, all of these things have long leaned left, which is not necessarily a problem. But after 2014, um, the far left basically had their run of the house because anybody who said, now, wait a second, uh, would be called a racist or a transphobe or something like that. So once the moderates shut up and go silent, you get a spiral of silence. And then you get, you know, like our high schools in New York City, our high schools, you know, every class has to be about racism. Chemistry has to be about about racism. Otherwise, it's if it's not anti-racist, then it's racist, Ibram Kendi says. So because 
you know, most people on the left are sensible and they know that that's, that's a strange thing to say, but they don't say anything. So everything gets uh, revised to become about, about race and oppression. And most voters hate that. Now, what the voters think doesn't matter um, on any day, except for election day, right. it does matter on election day. So that I think is why the Democrats aren't winning. They should be cleaning up. The Republicans are so stupid. They've become the stupid party, but the Democrats can't win because they keep alienating people. Yeah, and what's fascinating, again, because it's such a small group on both sides that actually mm-hmm. drive the conversation. You said, uh, read in your afterward, that you know, devoted conservatives and progressive activists make up about you know 14% of the U.S. population. But but be, because they, they, I mean they just wield enormous influence yeah. on our political discourse uh, because one they're more passionate uh, and then their hatred for each other just keeps driving it. What I found fascinating about that was it was how white both groups are. <laughs> the yes. devoted yeah. conservatives, were, you know, were the whitest of all seven groups. You said eighty-eight mm-hmm. percent white, and yet the progressive activists were the second whitest mm-hmm. group, eighty percent. Uh, so that these two groups are driving this, uh, or at least, again, the the loudest voices in social yes. media and the retweets and the and the discourse. Um, and so, how does the middle? How, how do you know, there's there's a big there's 86 percent out there mm-hmm. um, that aren't yeah. in either of those groups. I mean, some of them are not reachable on either side, I'm sure. But yeah, no, that's right. But but there's got to be is it, that's what I'm saying. Is it just that that um, you think it's got to be literally, you know, sort of technology changes or is there things individuals can do to. Yeah, there are definitely things individuals can do, and an individual courage would count for a lot. Now, it would be a lot easier, and more people could stand up if they weren't sure to get shot with a thousand darts. Right. That's a metaphor for you know being called nasty names on Twitter. Um, everyone's afraid of Twitter. The leaders of organizations, you know, as soon as there are seven people on Twitter, you know, calling them names, they freak out and they capitulate. Um, so, if we could, we I think we need to change the technological environment to give to make it more make it easier for more people to stand up. But even if we don't, even if we're stuck with this, I think there is a growing understanding that Twitter is like the veil of Maya, that, you know, if if you promote somebody in your newspaper and it turns out that 15 years ago that person used a word that now they shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't use today, you know, five years ago they would have been fired within 24 hours. Um, that happened over and over again. Uh, but I think now there, I think there's an emerging understanding that nobody's pure or we shouldn't be firing people because seven people or even 7,000 people tweet about them. And if we just wait three or four days, the mob will move on to someone else. So uh, I think there is more room for courage now than there was four or five years ago. When Trump was president, I think that uh, that just ex- everyone lost their minds. Um, uh, there was just such craziness. Um, so I, so I, in my Atlantic article, I focus on structural changes. But I don't. Th- I should have said more about what individuals can do. We all do have agency, and um, if you're, you know, a lot of people, like people on the right, will stand up against, you know, against wokeness and just yell and scream about wokeness. But that doesn't tend to have an effect on people on the left. What would really have an effect and make the make left-leaning organizations less structurally stupid is for the moderates and for the leaders, whatever their politics, to always stand up for basic decency and giving people the benefit of the doubt. And you know, you can acknowledge the concerns of, of people criticizing while still saying, 
uh, you know, we, you know, we, we all make mistakes, or we, we're going to have due process here. Or we're, you know, we're, we're never going to just fire people because they were accused. So we we do have to. The issue isn't standing up to the other side. The issue is that moderates on each side have to stand up to the aggressive extremes on their own side. Well, and and this gets to another point from your article, and I know you've you've actually talked about this a couple times. And anytime we can talk about Federalist Ten, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. But you basically said we're living Madison's <clears throat> nightmare. And one thing, one thing that you said that I, I didn't think of until I read it from you was that we, we have this kind of tendency towards triviality and the idea that, like, the stuff we actually should be having, I mean, not like bare-knuckle you know, brawls about, but these big things that we really should be using the social media to, mm-hmm. to argue about, instead it's like Ted Cruz tweeting or the tax the rich dress, or, or I think those are a couple that you cited. Yeah, it's like, that's right. it's kind of insane what we're actually arguing about. That's right. It's so trivial. The idea that Twitter is the public square is, is, is pathetic and laughable um, because it, it's not doing what the public square should do. It's doing what the gutter or the sewer does. So, so um, yeah, anyone out there who has not read Federalist 10, just Google it. Um, you know, the Federalist essays uh, written by Madison and, and uh, uh, Hamilton and a few others um, to argue for adopting the Constitution. So there's the famous part of Federalist 10 where James Madison talks about our liability or tendency to faction. And he talks about how, um, how uh, let's see, here's, I got the exact quote here. A zeal for different opinions concerning religion and government and, and many other things. Um, uh, has in turn divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity, and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their common good. Okay, so that's that's widely quoted because he's warning us about political parties and the tendency to divide into factions where you don't care about the country. All you care about is beating the other side. You don't care that the ship is sinking as long as we win against, you know, against the other side. Um, so that line is well known. But when I went back to, to look at that and I, and I read around that, the very next line is this amazing insight in which Madison basically describes Twitter. Uh, he says, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and incite their most violent conflicts. And that's, you know, I, I don't go on Twitter very much these days anymore, but when I do, it's so sad. It's so sad. Yeah, I have a lot of friends on Twitter. It's so sad to see them fighting over stupid little things. And we have, uh, and we have no Lincoln today to say that we're not enemies, but friends. And yeah, we must not right. be enemies. Uh, that's right. And call to the better angels of our nature, which is, you know, as somebody who was sort of, viewed technology that came in 2003, 2004 in the Dean campaign and just saw this, uh, you know, very utopian view of, of technology and yes, where it would take, utopian. It, take us. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. Utopias never, somehow they never are realized. Yeah. yeah. They did. This one totally went the opposite went direction. Nightmare. Uh, and I, yeah, it's a nightmare, but I also, you know, uh, again, I think these next two elections in particular, you, you know, how, again, how do we get out of the, it can, we pull out of this polarizing spiral mm-hmm. in time um, and reach enough people uh, to find some, enough common ground that, yeah. that we can actually save the democracy. 
it's urgent that we focus on these next two elections, especially the 2024 election. Um, I've started reading this book. Barbara Walter wrote a book called How Civil Wars Start. Uh, I urge everyone to read it, or you can just listen. Uh, she was on a podcast with Yasha Monk. So if, if you listen to the Good Fight podcast, there's a great discussion between them. But here's why it's important for our conversation. So Barbara Walter uh, worked, she's a, a political scientist, I think. Uh, she was part of a group stu uh, studying a, a database about how civil wars start. Um, and civil wars in the 19th century were very different. You know, the U.S. Civil War with soldiers in uniform. Um, they looked at all the civil wars since the uh, Second World War. And they're not like the U.S. Civil War. They're, they usually start with militias, um, you know, non-state power that goes around killing people. Um, it's when you have a democracy that's decaying um, into what she calls an anocracy. So it's not quite a democracy. And the U.S. has decayed. We are still uh, certainly a democracy, but we've decided we're no longer a ten. You know, we used to be a ten, like top, like absolute top, like Denmark. And oh yeah, and now you know, we've moved around under the Trump administration. Uh, but you know, but if we're now an eight or a seven, something like that, where we're getting close to an anocracy, um, that's one danger. Um, it's really clear from looking at the patterns that the violence, I think we are going to have a lot more political violence and it, it's going to come, it's going to start from the right. Um, that's where you have the militias. That's where you have the idea. A common, a common theme is an ethnic group is losing power um, and they use violence to maintain their power. And so there's a lot of commentary on the left about how, you know, white men are privileged and they're so upset that they're losing power. And so that's what drives Republican rage. Um, and I think there is there is something to that. Um, so if violence starts, I think it's likely to, to start or to or to come from the right more than the left. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I I, I was so I, I think is so important for the left to understand. Um, another one of the key hallmarks of a country descending into civil war is that its politics becomes not about interests or even ideology, but about identity. It becomes about race or religion. And when you have parties organized around identity, then people have nowhere to go. They, they can't switch parties. So that is, a, that is a major spur to civil war. And here, of course, you have far right people you know, who, are, who are true white identitarians, who are, who are true white supremacists. But, but, but the left, the, the progressive activists, constant ranting about white supremacy, everything is white supremacy, everything is, you know, everything is a referendum on how bad white people are in whiteness. This is insanity. I mean, this is a really, really good way to push the right towards civil war. And, to, and by the way, to alienate, you know, to alienate, uh, you know, at least half the country. Um, and, um, oh, and the, let's see, there was one other aspect of it. Oh, yeah. And then, the, the idea, oh my God, the, this constant claim that we're going to be a, a majority minority country by 2050, uh, uh, and then the exaltation are like, oh, it's going to be great. You know, we can't wait until white people are minority. So first, that's not going to happen for like 100 years. Like people don't seem to understand the way the census department counts race. If you have one grandparent who is not white, you're considered not white. And so I think Ted Cruz's blonde children are considered not white because right. you know he has you know one parent right. or something like whatever it is. So so yeah, the idea yeah. that it's going to you know the idea that um, that white people be a minority is not true. So every time people on the left celebrate it, and every time they heap contempt on white people, um, they're basically pushing they're 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 really helping the right to to gain to gain strength in the culture war. That was my point about the harder you fight a culture war, the stronger your opponent gets. And so so even though the violence is likely to start on the right. 
boy, the, the, the woke left is doing everything it can to make them strong. So guys, we're, we're running a little short on time here, but, but before we go, I, I wanted kind of Jonathan, your take on this. How do you see the, the fever breaking? I know you've got some tips for, for some of the structural things and it, is it kind of a combination of the individual and, and some of these structural things or, 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 or are we just totally screwed? Yeah. So I think about that a lot and, and I'm, I'm turning this article into a book and I'll have to go a lot deeper and I've got to work really hard to try to find an optimistic way to end it. But, but the key idea, the key idea that I think everyone should keep in mind is that history does move in cycles. I've begun reading these cyclical theories of history. They go back to ancient Greek days and uh, Ibn Khaldun, a, a, a Muslim sociologist from the 14th or 15th century. Uh, they've noticed that societies have periods of sort of growth and consolidation and strength. And then, you know, good times breed a certain kind of laziness and then things descend. And there are several theories from Peter Turchin in particular uh, that, were, that predicted a while ago, predicted a crack up around 2020 or in the 2020s. Um, and so the long, you know, the long post-war world is coming to an end. Um, the Democratic and Republican parties as they were, uh, they're, both, they're both kind of messed up. So we, we need a change. Something's gonna have to change. Um, and, and history has these ups and downs. So right now, you know, we had this incredible pinnacle around 2011 of techno-democratic optimism, and now we're on a downslide. I think things are gonna get a lot worse um, for the rest of the 2020s. Um, at some point, they're gonna turn around. At some point, there is a future in which technology gives us much better forms of democracy than we've ever had. That, that is theoretically possible, and I, I think we'll get there someday. I don't know if it'll be 10 years from now or 100 years from now, I have no idea. Um, but things move in cycles. And you know, East Asians actually think this way. The East and South Asians actually are more likely to see, you know, if, they, if you show them a trend line and say, what's gonna happen next? There's research showing that, well, you know, they, they think it'll reverse. Whereas Westerners and Americans in particular show them a trend line and they think it's gonna keep going. So right now we're on a down cycle. Now, of course, it's an up cycle for prosperity, for health, for rights. Um, Steve Pinker and others have written about how things are getting better, and that's true in, for material prosperity. Um, our democratic institutions are decaying. We don't know how far it'll go, but it will turn around eventually. Uh, and so I think it's incumbent on all of us to do what we can. Um, we, we have to realize the ship is sinking. Um, it's sinking because we're just fighting each other and we're not fixing the ship. So it's incumbent on everyone, especially in the middle 80%, to not be so afraid of the extremes, not be so afraid of being you know, called out um, on, on Twitter or elsewhere, um, and just, just show basic decency and humanity even to people who attack you. Uh, and if enough of us do that, um, then you know, I think there will be a sea change. Um, related to that, if everyone would just cut their social media use by 50%, um, because the whole system depends on us being angry enough to contribute content, which keeps others uh, angry. online and angry. Yeah. So uh, there are a lot of the things we can do to break the cycle. Well, you know, I, I'll end on this note. Uh, we've been lucky uh, and fortunate as Americans to have uh, leaders emerge in exactly these kinds of situations, whether it was Lincoln or or, or FDR or even Teddy Roosevelt, uh, someone you know, when you get, I, I think that that 80% out there uh, uh, that isn't really part of the, the, the loud voices that are driving this, somebody, it, it, a, a leader will emerge, uh, I think, in the next uh, cycle or two, probably, I don't know, to 2024, 2028, but someone um, 
it's gonna it's gonna speak to those people and pull 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 them together uh, and and pull us out of this. I mean, I think it may take yeah. that kind of a leader that can pull people together to, to do it. But we'll we'll see. Yeah, let us hope. Or maybe this is the age of decentralization. Maybe there won't be one leader coming down on a white yeah. horse to save us. It might be that we have to figure out how to use this very technology that's that's uh, uh, harming us somehow to create more decentralized reform methods. I don't know how what that will look like, but the 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 the, the path forward may be different from what it was in the past. Yeah, no, we've had Nicholas Grun on who talks about uh, uh, citizen juries and locally um, the, where people come together and and actually discuss as jurors the problems mm -hmm. and and ha they have to come to some agreement, whether that's to recommend to their representative or whatever, or have some authority to decentralize, localize, bring people mm -hmm. together locally. Um, where they know each other, uh, they may not yep. trust each yep. other, but they build that trust up. So there, there's things out there. I just think the problem with Nicholas and others that we've talked to is not that I, um, uh, not that your ideas about, uh, you know, authenticating users, et cetera, aren't, aren't the right ones. I think they are. And whether the tools will be there to, you know, to make things better, there are, and we can do it. It's just the question of in whether we can do it in time or not yeah, before or right. how or how much worse it will be before we 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 can get it pulled together those are yeah those are the questions tune in next time to find out what happens to our heroes we may we may have you back to talk about that in a few months uh uh but uh look i think we're out of time jonathan thanks so much for for coming on thanks everyone for listening to that trippy show we'll include links to johnson's work especially the atlantic pieces in the show notes you can follow him on Twitter at John Height. That's J-O-N-H-A-I-D-T. Uh, and of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in a review on iTunes. Jonathan, thanks so much uh, for giving us your time and insight. My pleasure, Joe. My pleasure, Alex. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.